You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, probably because I'm a musician, uh, I get asked a lot of times by folks what kind of music I listen to. What kind of music do you listen to? And I never fail to disappoint them because my answer is typically none music. Uh, I, don't, I don't really listen to, I don't listen to music very much, which is weird because it's, you know, it's kind of my bread and butter. It's what I do, but I just, I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of over it, music, I don't know. But, but, uh, but they ask, well, okay, well, that's, why, do, then what are you listening to? And what I typically tell them is, well, uh, you know, three-hour-long academic debates online on controversial subjects. That's kind of my, my thing, right? It's my jam, right? Just turn it on and uh, just run. And, and I say, I'm just kind of going online. I'm just hunting for, like, what are the most offensive topics in the world uh, for two people to talk about? I want to listen to uh, smart people debate for three hours, and then I just feel like a million bucks. Uh, it's a... It's a pathology, I think. Uh, and, uh, and I love it. I learn so much from it. I, that's one of the reasons I do it. I just like thoughtful engagement, right? And, and, uh, and so you're listening to the most brilliant minds in the world to talk about the most important things in the world. And, and uh, you're constantly picking up on things. Like um, one debater might say to another debater, hey, that's a, that's a red herring argument, right? You ever heard that term? That's a red herring. Uh, if you don't know that term, a red herring, uh, the history of it, 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 it kind of dates back to the, the way back when, when allegedly, if you had a, uh, like a set of bloodhounds chasing the scent of an animal or something, they're on the scent of it, you would take a, a big herring fish that had been like brined and smoked, and it's like super potent, stinky kind of smell, and you would drag that across the path of the dog so that while they were chasing this thing, uh, they hit the scent of the red herring and it takes them off the scent. And now all of a sudden they're distracted and all of a sudden they're going uh, a different way. It's called a red herring argument. You hear it a lot uh, all over the place. You hear it a ton in politics. If you want, if you want an example of like uh, a great red herring, just watch uh, any presidential uh, sort of stump speech ever that's ever taken place, any press conference ever, and, and it usually goes something like uh, the guy asks, hey, Mr. President, how do you... How do you explain this terrible thing that your administration just did? And he goes, I'll tell you something that uh, is terrible, John. The status of our school sack lunches. That's, that's terrible. We need to talk about that. You're like, whoa, what just? I thought we were, but okay, sack lunch. I guess that's the topic. And we're off the scent. You see, we're off the scent. It's a red herring that he just threw in front of us. Now, why am I bringing that up to you this morning? I'm bringing it up because today we are in the creation narrative. That's what we're doing this morning. And I think that that's exactly what's happened today with, with the church's handling of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, that, that we've been thrown off the scent and we've missed the main point. I think we've missed the main point. We've been, we've been thrown off the scent by a world that is making us ask questions of this text that the text is simply not interested in asking. Uh, so... so how we got here is a, is a bit of an interesting journey, but I'll give you a quick history lesson. So the 17th century comes online, 1600s, you got Descartes and you got the Enlightenment era, right? And, and really what's happening in the Enlightenment is this. It is, a, it is a jettisoning of biblical authority and it is an embracing of human reason as the highest authority. So what happens in my mind as I think about a thing, that is the high authority I appeal to now, right? So that kind of sets the stage for a lot of stuff that follows, like the 19th century when Charles Darwin comes on the scene and he writes a book called On the Origin of Species. 
Now, the, the human mind, the Western mind, is open to the possibility that if I can just kind of figure it out up here, then it must be true, so let me hear this guy's argument. And, and he starts positing things like natural selection, right? And, and, and uh, talking about things like a, a macroevolution and new theories of the origin of the world. And now the conversation about Genesis, outside and inside of the church, totally changes. We're, we're focusing on something new now. Suddenly Christians are kind of like we're on our heels. We're on the defensive. We have to like prove things like the, the age of the earth and, and what about Pangaea and how do all these dinosaur bones get here and maybe Satan put them there, right? You're like, we have to get weird all of a sudden with everything. And, and some of you feel like this. You feel like you've got to hide Genesis 1 from your friends. Like it's like the bad haircut of the Bible. Like I'm so sorry. I, they just, I was high and tight and they just, it just went really bad. But what I want you to see today is that actually what's happened is the world has thrown a red herring across our path. That, that, that's what's happened. It's taken us off the scent of what Genesis 1 is really about. Okay, see, we've, we've been told by the world that we need to make Genesis 1 and 2 explain what it was never meant to explain. We're forcing Genesis 1 to tell us the when and the how of creation. But the problem is, that's not what Genesis 1 is about. It's not interested in the when and the how, and it never was. What if the purpose, instead of Genesis 1, was to show you something precious about your God and his purpose for you in the world? What if that's what it was about? In fact, I think that's exactly what it's about, that the creation account in our Bible is not about the when and the how. It's about the who and the why. That's what it's about. It's about the who and the why. It's about the who. That in it we meet this sovereign, all-powerful, creative God who's before all things and who made all things. And this God, the text says, is up to something. He has a why for what he's making. And the why is this, that he is preparing a place for his people to live with him as he rules from a palace called the promised land. Let me say that one more time, because this is gonna be sort of our guiding line today. Our God is preparing a place for his people to live with him as he rules from a palace called the promised land. That's what he's doing. And if that's true, do you see how it changes everything about how we think about this text? It changes everything about our conversation about Creation, and I promise you, if you'll follow me today, it will sweeten what the Bible is doing for you. It will sweeten it. Because what we're looking at is the very ends for which God created the world. That's what we're looking at. So let's do this. Let me tell you where we're heading today. A lot to cover. Um, I first want to start by just sort of outlining the issues in this chapter. What, what are the main ways that the Christian church understands what's happening here. We need to get our bearings, because probably most of you are not nerding out for you know, hours at a time uh, on these subjects. So let's get our, our moorings and then uh, f f figure out kind of what the issues are. And then we're gonna get into the weeds of the text. We'll, we'll get in, we'll, we're gonna spend the lion's share of our time this morning just in the text of Genesis one and two to find out what it actually says about the creation account. We'll pull over, we'll, we'll look at you know, the scenery and, and take some pit stops as we go, but, but that's largely what we're gonna do. And then we're gonna end just by kind of coming up for air, looking at the forest itself and asking, what does this mean for us? What does it mean? If, if what we've seen in the text is true, what does that mean for me 
today. So that hopefully by the end of this, you're going to see that the opening words of the Bible are, are not just about the fact that God made everything. That is true. But more than that, why he made it and what it means for your joy in him. Does that make sense? So that's, that's where we're heading. So uh, here we go. Uh, let's talk about uh, the issues, the views. What, what, how have we thought about creation? Uh, Christians have had a number of takes on what Genesis 1 and 2 uh, is doing over the, the years. Let me give you like a tour of some of the, the big boys uh, that are held by Christians, probably by many of us in this room. Uh, okay, so uh, six-day creationism will be our first one, or just creationism, right? You've heard that it's, it's a very common one among uh, evangelicals. So this, this view posits that uh, the six days of creation are six literal 24-hour day periods, uh, and it's a, it's a young earth theory that all of creation took place over those literal six 24-hour days. So young earth, so that means that they date the earth uh, roughly around 6,000 years or so. And the way they get that number, they, they didn't just like roll dice. They, they looked at the text of scripture and they looked at every genealogy. They put 40 years to each generation and they went back from Jesus to Adam and then you get your number. Right? So they go, roughly, if we take the text like that, it means that this earth is probably about 6,000 years old. And the way they account for, say, the, the apparent uh, age of the earth, because the earth looks old, we got Grand Canyons and we got things happening there, right? is um, they, they locate all of that at the flood. Genesis 6 transformed the globe in such a way uh, that it has the appearance of age when, in fact, it's really a young earth. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the first way, a very uh, prominent evangelical way to, to look at this. Uh, then you have your day-age creationism. Did you think we were going to get, like, full nerd this morning? Uh, or progressive creationism. So this is not young earth, it's old earth. The, you have those six days of creation, but they are not literal 24-hour days. It is a uh, metaphorical or... Um, poetic way to talk about uh, different geological time periods such that each of those six days of creation make up a slice of geologic time, millions, maybe billions of years taking place in each of those slices. So you get, you get the text of scripture, but it's actually uh, to a progressive creationist, uh, you're getting old earth within the words of scripture because it's not taken literally in that sense. Does that make sense? So uh, they're taking modern scientific findings, they're putting it on the text, and they're saying, I think the text is actually uh, saying what we're discovering in modern science. That's, that's how they're doing it. That's day age. Uh, gap creationism. Gap creationism is uh, old earth, uh, but it preserves literal six 24-hour days. Now, how do you get that? How are we old, but, but there's six 24-hour days? Because they place a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So there's really kind of two creations taking place in this schema. Uh, Genesis 1-1, God creates everything, and then, then something happens between 1-1 and 1-2, and it's the fall of Satan and his demons. So, so where do we place that in history? The Bible doesn't say. So uh, this type of creationist would place it right here, and they would say, this is when all that craziness went down, and it went down in such a way that it broke the system. It broke the universe such that when we get to Genesis 1-2, it explains why it looks like everything's crazy and chaotic, right? And the earth was formless and void. They're saying it was great, the fall of Satan happened, and it all got wacky again, and what's happening in Genesis 1-2 is a sort of recreation of 
the heavens and the earth. And that's how we're getting old earth, uh, but six literal 24-hour days. Does that make sense? Uh, one more. This is, this is going to be starting to, we're, we're on the fringes now. Theistic evolution. So this is uh, simply saying that the Genesis account is poetic. It's Moses' way to poetically say, hey, God made this. God made it. But it's doing nothing by way of the how he made it. Uh, and to get the how, we look to modern scientific findings, right? So you go to the Bible to find out God did it, and then you go to science to find out how he did it. And so instead of chance acting on matter over billions of years, you have God acting on matter over billions of years. So that's the difference between atheistic uh, evolution and theistic evolution. Does that make sense? So, so those are kind of the, the four common Christian views out there. Now, there is so much to say about all those, and I'm going to say nothing, um, except that with the exception of theistic evolution, which I think has some major challenges biblically, uh, all the other views that I just shared, that you just heard, are completely within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. They can work, meaning there are godly, Bible-committed, conservative Christians who hold all of these views for various and largely good reasons, okay? In fact, one of my smaller goals this morning as I was working on, on this uh, sermon is just to convince you, you don't have to murder the person who doesn't hold your view on this. You don't have to do that. That's because this is in the realm of what we Christians call a persuasion. And this is such a, a big distinction to understand the difference between persuasions and convictions within the Christian faith, right? Uh, you act very differently depending on what they are. Convictions are things like Jesus is God. That's not up for grabs. If you're a professing Christian and you don't hold to Jesus as God, you're not a Christian, right? You should break fellowship with a person who's professing that Jesus is not God and yet claiming to be a Christian. The, the stakes are high, it's a conviction. But the earth is young, the earth is old, the earth is made of cottage cheese. These are, these are persuasions. Some have more merits than others, but they're persuasions, which means I don't have to break fellowship uh, with you even though I might think you're crazy, right? So I, I, I don't have to do that, it's a persuasion. And, and, uh, and I think it's an important distinction for us to embrace. And let me just say this, I actually don't hold to any of those views. Dum, 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 right? I don't. Um, you'll get my view today as, as we go, but even in my view, which uh, many other people hold, by the way, I'm not a kook, um, I'm, I'm holding that view with a really open hand, meaning I could be wrong. I could be wrong, and, and it will be up to your discernment and the Holy Spirit bringing clarity uh, to find out if I'm uh, wrong or not. And so here's what I, I want you to hear before we go any further. Do you know what all of us need in this room today and at home uh, as we are wrestling through these issues, more than anything else, you know what we need? Humility. Can we just use a just big dose of humility of, of like, I'm gonna come, and I'm gonna come open-handed, I'm gonna come curious, like there are godly people on all sides of the aisle with this issue. So let's do our best to just see what the text says, come humble, come open-minded, and look at it together, yeah? Okay, that's what we're gonna do. Um, let's get into what the text says. If you've got your Bible, get it out. We're in Genesis 1, 1. Uh, turn to it. Uh, and we're really going to slow down over these first couple verses. Uh, it, we're going to get kind of technical. 
Uh, but it, I promise if you'll hang with me, you're going to be rewarded in the end because it's going to bring so much clarity to where we're heading this morning. So if we can continue to live in Nerdville for like the next 10, 15 minutes, uh, uh, it will pay off, I promise. Here we go. Verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is the inspired word of God. So we know every word that shows up here shows up here on purpose, right? That's our conviction as Christians. So let's look at each phrase and let's let it shape our understanding of things. In the beginning, Breshit, right? It is, it is this word in the Hebrew, uh, Rashit uh, particularly, uh, that's a very special word. Uh, and it's a word that we put meaning into that very well may be wrong. Um, because this word does not mean in the Hebrew language a point in time. But when we hear beginning, of course, we typically think the start of something, beginning. But that's not what this word means. There are words in Hebrew that do the point of time thing. There's two words that Moses could have chosen to mean at a point in time, God made the heavens and the earth. But he didn't use those words. He used Rashid. And Rashid means a time period. That's interesting. A span of time. It's the, it's the same word that later biblical authors are going to use to, dis, to um, count a king's reign. They count it in two parts. There's two figures they give. The beginning, the reshit of his reign, and then all the years that follow. And both of those sets are actually durations of time. And that beginning of, say, a king's reign could be months. In some cases in the Bible, it's years long, and it all fits into the beginning. So, so the beginning is not a punctiliar moment, like phew, it's just one little moment. It is, it is a span or a time period, and, and it could be 10 minutes. It could be 10 billion years. We just don't know. That's the point. The text of Genesis is agnostic about how old the earth is. It's agnostic about it. It just says, in the beginning, which allows for duration to occur. Does that make sense? That's all that we know at this point. Could have been a few minutes, could have been billions of years. We don't know. Now, I know what you're already thinking. What you're already thinking is, wait, we haven't even gotten to the six days of creation. Isn't it called the six days of creation? Like, uh, like what, what are the... What, what's going on there? Wasn't that the creation coming up in the six days? Calm down. We're going to get there, all right? Uh, okay, so in the beginning, God created. That's our next phrase, created. Bara. This, this is also another special word, and it's used in the Bible only for God. Only what God does when God creates something new and, and fresh and perfect. It, it, it's this word, bara. And, and that something that he created, the text says, is what? The heavens and the earth. Literally, the sky and the land. And what's important here to notice at this point is uh, what this phrase is. It's actually a literary device. It's a poetic device called a merism. Any uh, English majors in here, you probably know this term, a merism. A merism is a figure of speech where you state two contrasting ideas in a poetic way to sort of say the whole of a thing. So if I was to say, I searched high and low for my wallet, that would be a merism to say, I searched everywhere, right? 
So I'm saying two things to say everything. I searched high and low. I didn't name every place, but you get the gist. It's, it's everything in between that. And that's exactly what's happening here. So sky and land stated by themselves just mean sky and land. But when you combine them, they become more than the, the sum of their parts. They, it's another way to say everything. Everything. All that is. The entire universe, right? Earth and the Milky Way and quasars and black holes and the sun, moon, and stars, everything. God made everything, it says, Genesis 1.1. Interesting. So now let's just put it all together. Let me give you a, a translation of, of verse 1, taking into, into account the, what we just learned about those phrases, okay? In that indefinite period of time called the beginning, God created all that exists the entire universe. Now, if that's really what it says, that, that God created the entire universe, everything that is, in just verse one, then what in the world are the six days of creation for? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at it together. Let's go to verse two. We're gonna keep, we're gonna keep unpacking. It says this, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is such a crucial moment right now. Uh, this, is, this is so important that we guard against our presuppositions, the things that we are presupposing before we come to the text. And we all have them, right? It's not even a good or bad thing. It's just we are contextualized people, right? Which means everything we read in the Bible, we read from a spot in history, a spot on the earth. We read from a socioeconomic background. We, we read from our context, and that informs what we see. And again, it's not good or bad. It's just what it is. So we need to be mindful of that when we are reading. Now, uh, it's going to shape how we interpret things. Let me give you an example uh, of how this works, and this will be fitting with what we're doing right here. Close your eyes for a moment. Uh, just right there where you, if you're home, close your eyes. And, uh, and I'm not going to steal your wallet, and I, I am, uh, I'm going to say a word, and I just want you to picture it in your mind, okay? Just picture this word, the earth. Get it in your mind, look at it, see it, open your eyes. Here's my question. Uh, well, I'll say it like this. Um, I'm willing to bet lots of money uh, that 95% of the room, if not everybody in the room, when I said earth, you saw this. Right? Now, you see where I'm going. Now, is there any chance that an ancient Near Eastern Jew in 1300 BC, when they heard the word earth, they saw that? There's not a chance, right? There's no way that that's happening. Here's the point. Our first job is to understand what this text meant to its original audience. That's Bible study 101. If you're ever reading the Bible, always ask that. What did this mean to them? Not to me, to them. And then you'll figure out what it means for you. So who's the original audience? Well, there are a group of people called the Israelites who at this point in history are poised right on the edge of a piece of land God promised their forefathers that one day they would inherit. Huh. 
And Moses writes the opening words of Genesis to these people. Why? Why these words to these people? And this is where I'm going to show my hand a little bit, my my understanding of Genesis 1. Answer, so that he could say to his people, the same God who brought you out of Egypt to this land is the same God who prepared this land for you from the very beginning. That's what he's saying. That's what I think is going on here. And that's what I believe the six days of creation are about, that God is preparing the promised land, making it habitable for people to dwell in. That's what I think is happening here. And maybe you're really weirded out right now and thinking about leaving. Please stay. Um, you go, Jimmy, how did you get here? Because I just, I read that chapter and I'm, I'm really not seeing that. Okay, okay, that's fair. So uh, look, when we read, uh, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. I, I don't know about you, but I've always seen that in my mind like this. It's like this amorphous blob of liquid, black liquid kind of floating there, right? And it's kind of hovering there and it's just waiting for God to, to shape it into what we now know is our planet. Right, but I don't think that's what's happening anymore. For one, the word earth right there is just the Hebrew word for land. And it, it can mean the whole earth, like the realm of all life. Uh, but most often in the Old Testament, it's the primary word to talk about the promised land God pledged to his people. And what about without form and void? That sure sounds like an amorphous blob of gas floating there, right? That sounds like it's, it's without form. Until you discover that those same words in other parts of the Old Testament mean something more like empty and uninhabitable and wasteland. Interesting. In fact, Moses uses that word tohu, of, uh, which we get formless from in, Genesis, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, and he pairs it with a desert scene. He says this in verse 10. <clears throat> he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste, there's our word, of a wilderness. Totally different image in your mind now, right? It's, it's, it's not this, it, now we're starting to see, it's not a blob of, of amorphous gases and liquids floating there, but what we're seeing is a piece of land that's desert-like, it's uninhabitable, it's a wasteland. Interesting. And what unfolds over the next six days is God ordering that land in such a way that it would be a fitting place for mankind to inhabit. That's what he's doing. And if this is right, if I'm not off on this, this actually solves all kinds of problems we Christians have had with Genesis 1 for a long time. I'll I'll give you some examples. Uh, Okay, for one, have you ever noticed God creates light? He seems to create light on day one, but then he creates the sun, moon, and stars on day four. I don't know if you know this, but light comes from the sun. So we have a problem here. Now, now Christians over the years have tried to figure out how to make this make sense, and, and there's a bunch of different theories out there. One of them is, goes like this. Well, maybe God was the light those first three days. I mean, we, we know in Revelation it says that he's the light. We know that he's the light of the world. Uh, maybe that's, that's what's uh, happening. Maybe, maybe. 
But the text doesn't say that, and we're definitely having to put that into the text. And my question would be this, if that's true, and it's possible that it's true, um, does, does God flip off his light switch at 7 p.m. and flip it on at 7 a.m.? Because he would have to do that morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening till the fourth day. And that, to me, I don't, it just strikes me as weird. I'm just like, okay, I'm off. <laughs> yeah, it's like that, I just, I don't, I don't know, I personally don't buy it. Maybe if, if you do, you know, no harm, no foul, but I, it's just not for me. But if this is talking about God preparing the promised land in an already created universe then we don't have that problem at all because we've already established that God made everything in verse one, including the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they've been working like a charm ever since. And so on day four, he's not creating the sun, moon, and stars. He's assigning their function. Look with me in verse 14. It says this, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. He's giving them their purpose for when mankind shows up. And in fact, it's, it's even more obvious to see when you look at the Hebrew because the Hebrew in verse 14 doesn't actually say, let there be lights in the expanse to separate. It actually says, let the lights in the expanse be for separating. Ah, do you, do you see? It assumes they exist. Let them be for separating. That's the command of that day. They're already there, and what he's doing is assigning their function for mankind to give seasons and days and weeks and years. That's what he's doing, and so it goes. And so each of these six days, God is doing that kind of work, assigning functions to things and separating waters from water. So setting clouds above the, the land in, in the sky in day two. Uh, he's gathering the waters on, on the ground together so that there will be a space of dry land for man to live on in day three. He's placing all kinds of fruit trees there and, and plant life for man to have as food in day five. He's calling animal life in and aquatic life in. He's calling the birds of the sky to come over and he's, he is preparing a place for the people he's about to place there. That's what he's doing. Maybe you can think about it um, uh, like this. Uh, one of our friends shared with us recently that uh, they're having a, uh, a baby, they're pregnant. It was amazing news. Now, uh, they already own a fully functioning house. They live in it right now. It's awesome, it's wonderful, great place. But they're having a baby now, which means that that one room right, which is just storage and, you know, old yearbooks and stuff like that, right, that, that room that we all have in our house, that room is now becoming a baby's room. So what they're doing is they are buying a crib now, and they're painting the walls, and they're changing the floors, and they're, they're child-proofing the, the air particles, and I mean, it's a thorough job, and I get pictures on my phone, I'm like, that looks fabulous, because I'm a dad now, and I love that kind of stuff, right? But here's the point. They already have a house. It's already there. It already functions, but they're preparing a space for a new person in it. Does that make sense? God has done the same thing here, I think. He has made the house in verse 1. We saw that. But there is a room that needs some work if his image bearers are going to move in. 
And then on day six, the huge moment occurs, right? Uh, after he makes the animals, God creates man. And he moves man into his new room, so to speak, right? The promised land. And he places them there. And he blesses them. And he gives them, it says, rule over every living creature. This is a huge moment. It's a culminating moment. We've reached day six. We're almost done. It's the climax of creation. And you think it's over. Except it's not. Because we know we have a, another day to go. And I love how one commentator put it. He says, day six is the climax of creation, but it is not the conclusion of creation. See, we have one more day to go, day seven, and it is maybe the most important of the days. So look with me now in Genesis 2, one through three. It says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, to be honest, this day always struck me as kind of weird, right? Uh, I couldn't place the significance of it in the narrative. And also, why is God resting? Why is the guy that I call the Almighty, like, chilling? Why does that need to happen on the last day? And it's, I think it's confusing. It was confusing to me, and I think it's confusing to the modern ear, because when we hear rest, we have some presuppositions. We import onto that word what we mean as modern Westerners by rest. And what we mean by rest is nap time, right? <laughs> That's what we mean, right? God was pooped. Man, six, day, six days. I mean, he made a lot of stuff, guys. And so he needed a break. So he got on his jam jams and, and he just binge watched some Netflix and he took a load off. And you should too. That's what Sabbath's all about, right? That's how, we, that's how we talk about Is that what's, that is not what's happening. If that's what you thought, repent. <laughs> that is not what, a, what an ancient Near Eastern person would hear. It's just not what they would hear. Because this was actually very familiar language to the people of that day. Resting did not mean relaxing, but it meant something closer to ceasing and settling in. In fact, it's exactly the language you would use to talk about a king taking his place on his throne. He rested there after the palace was built. That's how you would talk about it in ancient literature. So the seventh day exists. Do you see it? to say something like this. After God made all the preparations for the land, on the seventh day, he took up residence and settled in to rule and reign there as king. Wow. That gives me chills just saying that. Now we have the full picture. Let me recap for you. Now we have a land fully prepared and ready for God's special creatures. And then man is made and placed into it to live and exercise rule over it. And then God, finally on the seventh day, he settles in as king to exercise his rule in a palace called Eden. This is an amazing scene. It's, it's electrifying. It, God and man together in the land. 
And chapter 2 tells us about this land. It goes even further. We won't get into it today, but it tells us that this land is full of orchards and fruit trees, and there's rivers flowing out of it, and there are precious stones, and there's gold everywhere, and it's perfect. And we could stop there, but I told you at the beginning that we're going to end by seeing what it all means. So what does all that mean? You have the scene in your mind now. What does it all mean for us? Well, I don't know if you caught it, but every single thing I just described to you in these first two chapters of your Bible, every single one of them shows up in one other place. The last two chapters of your Bible. Almost word for word. Because there we read, and you can turn there if you want, to Revelation 21 and 22. The first verse of Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's interesting, because we just read that in Genesis 1.1. Then what? What do we see? A garden, 22.2. Rivers, verse 1. Precious stones, verse 19. Gold, 21.21. Fruit trees, verse 2. Man, God, together. Every single thing that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, we see in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the story all over again. In fact, Revelation 21.3 says it like this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What is going on? I don't know if you see it yet, but what, what does this all mean? Here's what it means. This is, this is the main point that from the very beginning of the story, God had the very end of the story in mind. From the very beginning, the people God made in the land God made, dwelling with God forever. That's the point. And it's breathtaking. This is the point of everything. We... It is why you were made. I just told you why you were made. So you could be part of the people of God in the land of God with God dwelling with you forever. It's, why every, it's where every Christian in this room is headed to live with God in the good land. And I so wish I could end there. And I so wish it was as clean as that. And, and, and I wish that those two uh, opposing sets of chapters uh, were closer together in the Bible, but they're not, and we know they're not. Because we know in just a few weeks what happened, that in Genesis 3, we forfeited our dwelling with God through Adam's sin, and we are consummately kicked out of the good land. We're kicked out of the garden and we're kicked out of God's presence. And all of a sudden, by the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, it seems like all hope's lost. The, the plan has failed. The, the good land with mankind dwelling with their good God forever is abandoned by chapter three. It looks like all hope is lost. Except that between us dwelling with God in the beginning and us dwelling with God in the end 
right in the middle, God came to dwell with us. John puts it like this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This is the gospel that Jesus came. God himself, when we could not dwell with him, came and dwelt with us. In the person of Christ, he took on the punishment for our sins. And so that whoever would trust in this God-man would have access to that God-man in the good land forever. Do you see it? God came to dwell with us so that we could dwell with God. What is the gospel? You want one sentence version of the gospel? It's that. God came to dwell with us so that we could dwell with God. And he did it in the person of Jesus. And he did it for you. He did it to give you the vision of Genesis 1 and 2. And he did it so that it would consummate in Revelation 21 and 22. This is our story. And it's what Jesus purchased for us. And listen, I don't know where you are in this room. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know if you're near from God, far from God, if you say you would even know God. But I just, I just want to invite you to this. This vision is for you to take part of. And, and I don't know, maybe you've, been, maybe you've been chasing all sorts of things your whole life, and, and it's just never satisfied your heart. And can I say, I think C.S. Lewis might be right on this when he wrote that, if we find in ourselves a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And what I'm arguing is, it's this world, the good land with our good God forever. And so will you come to him? Will you cast yourself on the God who would dwell with us when we rejected him and did not dwell with him? because that's the invitation. Whether you're near to him now, come fresh again and, and delight in the fact that this story is heading to unspeakable, uh, unspeakable glory for you. And if you don't know him, come to him today so that you can get in on the most unbelievable, breathtaking story that's ever existed. God with you in the promised land forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and all its complexity. And we love it even when it's hard to understand. And we're asking that in these next moments, you would work it into us in some deep ways and, and light bulbs would be going off. We've been praying this week for this group of people that you would, that this creation account would be the turning point for people's joy in you. It doesn't seem like it would be that our world and, and even the, the common Christian chatter today about the creation account has made this only an intellectual conversation. God, it's so much more than that. It's, it's, it's our future. It's our everything. And I pray for our people and myself right now that it would be precious for us, that we would find this story so precious and we would want to be with the God who is telling it and the God who came. So God, please come. Please come through your Holy Spirit and help us see and savor the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. God, we want that so bad. Work it into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.